Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Today, we are joined by legendary inventor, Dean Kamen. Dean is an entrepreneur, science and technology advocate, and holds over 1,000 US and foreign patents. We discuss Dean's advice for innovators, insights on Steve Jobs, his plan to get students excited about science, and much more. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Well, Dean, it's such an honor to have you on the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Good to be here. Well, I think most Americans know you as a legendary inventor, someone who has a thousand plus patents to his name and, and so many things to talk about. I just wanted to start off with a simple question, which is, what invention are you most proud of and why? I've been asked that question a lot, more so in the last few years, and my answer is always the same. The invention that I'm most proud of, I don't know because it hasn't happened yet. I don't look backward. I look forward. And every year we have more people, more technology, more experience, more background. We like to take on an even bigger, maybe more important, maybe more audacious project. But if we end up succeeding at one of them, I'd like to think it will be awesome. The other answer to my question, what's the most important invention I've been involved in, the mere premise that invention is important, I take to the limit and say, if invention is that important, which I think it is, innovation is what moves the bar up for every generation of humanity. If invention is that important, then the most important thing you can invent is more inventors. And that's what FIRST does. I've now got an army of over a million kids that have been exposed to the world of using technology to solve problems, to create new solutions that never existed before. And these kids come away from even one season of FIRST, typically with a perspective which is dramatically different than they went in with. I can do this. These tools are powerful. Actually, the laws of nature may be subtle, but they're comprehensible because brilliant minds, whether it was Archimedes or you, you look at the 2000 years over which we've gotten gems that explain all the motion of the planets and why electricity and magnetism allows us to do all the things we do. I think kids that are exposed at an early age can be induced to become passionate about innovation and and. I think FIRST is doing that at this point uh, for millions of kids. And I think over the next few decades, the most enduring, powerful legacy of anything I've done will be FIRST. I'm hoping every invention I've made becomes obsoleted by a better one. The patents, as they should, expire, but the kids will go on and create great new things and their kids will do the same. So. I would say I am confident that first will be the most impactful and powerful of all the things I have, quote, invented. And what inspired you to start first? Was it the fact, was it the assumption that today's education system isn't set up to educate the inventors of tomorrow? Was it that certain trends like 
the cloud or artificial intelligence were to outpace what people are doing today? Give us give us a sense of that. I think people like to pit some idea against another. You know, competition is is almost now part of what we do. When we have a problem, we're better at finding somebody to blame than we are finding a solution. So when you say, did I start first because you know education isn't working? I think that's that's not a fair question. I think in its most basic form, what education is, is analysis. We can take all that's been known and been properly documented, and now at the internet, everything is documented. But even back to the days of when you had textbooks, the textbook would have a chapter on Newton's laws, that F equals MA, and on Maxwell's equations, electricity and magnetism. And we still learn Pythagorean's theorem about the squares. Well, you know what? Even if you were born a great genius, the idea that in a lifetime, starting from scratch, you would derive these incredible, elegant, beautiful mathematical principles. You would have created geometry or numbers and then trigonometry and calculus. Nobody could be such a genius. In fact, after thousands of years, we, we name the few geniuses that have given us jewels of geometry or algebra or calculus. And the same with the geniuses that gave us the rules, the first and second law of thermodynamics. So I would say education is about effectively delivering to people the sum total of all that was created by many, many, many generations of great geniuses. And without them, none of us are smart enough that we could ever get there. So education is really about fantastic way to efficiently give you a few thousand years of, of knowledge and expertise. The analysis, the back of the book tells you the answer. But the synthesis Analysis is break it all down so you can understand it. Synthesis is building up something. And building up something new is not what education does. You don't go into a classroom to synthesize. And to me, education was the half that said, we're going to give you all the tools. You'll understand analytics. You'll understand mathematics. You'll understand a lot of things. We gave you every tool. But can you imagine by analogy if, if every year... You went to school and one year they gave you a hammer and one year they gave you the saw and then they gave you nails and they gave and they gave you all the tools to build. But they never told you they're for building and you never got to build anything. You are now an expert on the tools. They tested you. What is that? Ah, that's a hammer. What's that? It's a screw. What would be the point of having all these fantastic intellectual tools in your head if you didn't understand not only how to apply them, but the goal was not to have you understand the tools. The goal was to use the tools to build a better future. So I think when I put first together, my real goal was to convince kids that it is absolutely worth the hard work and effort that they put in to learning how to use all these tools because they would be excited because in the project-based stuff we have them do, they get to synthesize things. They get to create things. I mean, I think, you know, having an invention, it's like having a baby. You created something that wasn't there before, and you can love your invention. Well, I think if we told kids, again, by analogy, that we're going to, you're going to really love sports. And if in kindergarten, we showed them pictures of a basketball court, and in first grade, we gave them quizzes about the size, the length, the field, 
and in second grade, if we took them for 10 years through all sorts of study of and gave them quizzes and tests on how different sports are made, but we never let them bounce the ball and try to get it in, they would not be in love with the sport. They would not have passion for the sport. They wouldn't spend hours a day trying to get better at those skills. Well, look at what we do on the academic side. In first grade, they'll learn how to count. In second grade, they learn maybe how to multiply. And then eventually they get to geometry or algebra or trigonometry. But when's the last time you saw a kid go into a store and buy something? And Well, I'll give you a cosine theta. Time. Why do I need trigonometry? Where am I ever going to use this? Then they suddenly get into a first competition and every bit of mathematics that they had been exposed to that they had no context for becomes a really powerful tool if they want to make this thing work. And they start to realize, oh, power is voltage times current. Huh, I want that motor to get the most power. What do I do? And all of a sudden, whether it's mechanical or electrical or systems or software or controls, all the things that were abstract ideas to them that had no way to be directly made useful to them become very real, as well as all the other stuff that kids have always loved about sports. Namely, they get to work in teams. They get all the thrill of, we don't know what the outcome's going to be. That's why it's exciting. Whereas in classroom, they always know the outcome. It's in the back of the book. All the problems are the same. All the answers are the same. So I started first because I believe not at, that it's in any way an alternative to education, it is a way to make kids realize the power of education by giving them great ways to apply it in the same way kids will be willing to do exercise and get stronger and get better if they thought I can apply that to go and play football or basketball or baseball. They need a context and schools do not give kids the superheroes and the role models and the context for why they want to learn calculus or geometry or biology or, or any any essentially intellectual exercise. And yet we know as a culture, if you can give kids a reason to get passionate about something, like a sport, they get really good at it. Uh, you know, imagine, by the way, when I used to tell people we're gonna make the first, the biggest and best sport these kids will ever play, they'd roll their eyes and they thought I was trying to create a science fair masquerading as something else. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not a science fair, it's a sport. And you know what makes it a sport? This is double elimination tournament at the end, not a quiz, not a final exam. They don't get judged by the teacher, the same teacher that turns his or her hat around at 3.30 and becomes the coach, the nurturing support feature, is the one that's going to inspire these kids. It's a different environment. It's the environment kids love. And they show up at the events to celebrate what they're doing. And they bring the school band and they bring the mascots. And everything we do in first will just be like all these other sports. And by the way, half of the reason that people justify spending so much time and money on sports and public schools, I mean, half the, the real estate of a school is its gymnasium and the football field. How do we justify that? They'll all come back thinking like first is competing with sports. No, it's using them as a model. Well, first is competing with education. No, it's making it relevant. But I say to people, we're not competing with any other sport. We're using them as a model. But by the way, you justify sports in the school mostly because you say, well, it's important that kids learn teamwork. To which my answer is great. And as teamwork is so important, why when they do it in the classroom do you call it cheating? 
let's use the sports model because it does work. It makes kids passionate. They work really hard. They develop these skills. They demand to be number one. The reason I called it first in the first place is I never saw kids running around at a sporting event cheering, I want to be second. But most of the kids in this country are happy to take math pass fail. They're happy to not take physics at all. Now, which of the activities that they're going to spend 10 or 20 hours a week on do you think are more likely to bring them to exciting career options? Bouncing a ball or developing that muscle hanging between their ears. Which of the activities of, uh, during the time they're growing up do you think are more important to their future? Eye-hand coordination of some physical skill or the ability to develop the, the capacity to use sophisticated abstract ideas to solve critical problems. So my goal in first was very simple. Make kids as passionate about developing that muscle hanging between their ears as they are about excelling in any other, and I'll say any other sport, because we are not an education program. We're a sport and, and inspires kids to become really good at a particular skill set. The only difference between our sport and all the others is ours is the only sport where every kid on every team can turn pro. There aren't a few million job openings every year in the world of the NFL or the NBA. There are millions of exciting career opportunities that sadly the kids in school today will have no chance of being able to get unless they start at an early age developing the skill sets that they develop in a first program. So, Dean, let me ask you this. This is Andrew. We know how to deal with running into obstacles in sports, and we know how to deal with failure in sports. How, how, what advice do you give to young inventors in the first program in terms of dealing with obstacles and failure? It's funny that you bring up the obstacles and failure in the context of both first and sports, because I will, I will continue my analogy because it's one of the critical things I think that people don't realize one of the subtleties of why kids love sports and why they're intimidated in school to take difficult subjects, let's say like physics. Because in physics or math or in anything, when you're in the classroom, if you get it wrong, it is the obligation of that teacher to put that big red X on there and to give you this judgmental B or C or D or F, that's a failure. But think about the sport. You go after school and you didn't hit the ball. Oh, you'll get another shot at bat. Oh, it's like, that's why we play the World Series seven different games. You can lose three times. It's okay. That's why every sport has a little luck in it. That's to help and protect and hide your ego. That's why in sports, oh, it was a lucky catch. Oh, the referee's a bum. But when you think about how we play sports, as long as you pick yourself up and keep trying, it's okay. You don't get a grade. So my answer to you is it is critical to have young kids learn at an early age that not getting it right the first time or, quote, failing is okay as long as you learn from it, pick yourself up and keep going. And ironically, that's what they do learn when they're in a sport. Unfortunately, it's not the policy in a classroom, and it should be. And I think the grading system has some negative effects on, on a lot of kids and again, there are some kids that, that can easily do what they're asked to do to get the A, but there are a lot of kids that might be very bright and willing to work very hard and really understand, but in different ways and at different levels, what's going on that would, quote, 
fail by some academic standards, but could be very successful in other ways and in life. But again, then leaving the world of first and going to the world of invention, I would tell you, of all the great innovators I've ever met, and I'm lucky, I've met a lot of them, famous ones that you could imagine today, some of the superheroes of the world of Silicon Valley and tech. And I would tell you, of all the great innovators I've ever met, if you ask, what's the common thing about them? It isn't the education. Many of them have PhDs. Many of them dropped out of school. I don't even think it's native intelligence, whatever that is. I would tell you the only characteristic that I think is pervasive among all the great innovators I know is that they were willing to and sadly very often did fail. Innovation is hard. If there was an important problem to solve and it was easy to solve, it would have been solved. So right now, if you're trying to solve a problem that's important, it's probably because nobody else has been able to do it in the last few thousand years. So you want to go innovate? You're going to fail. Then you're going to fail again. Then you're going to fail again. If you can deal with that, if you can fall down seven times but pick yourself up eight, you might be a great innovator. It takes courage. Most people will ridicule you. And even the people that aren't ridiculing you, there's enormous social pressure to avoid failure. Your mom and dad want to protect you. They mean well, but they want to protect you from harm. They want to protect you from failure. Your mom and dad are going to say, do the right thing, get good grades, go to college, get a job. Imagine the average kid coming home and say, hey, mom, hey, dad, I'm going to go do this highly risky thing. I'm probably going to fail. Mom and dad don't want to hear that. Mom and dad never want their kids to grow up and do that. I mean, you know, the old saying that the safest place for a ship is in the harbor is true. The trouble is it doesn't do you any good sitting there. So kids have to be given enough encouragement that they can fail, they can get over it, and they can keep trying. And and I would tell you, if you want a generation of innovators, uh, they have to learn that uh, getting it wrong a few times is part of the learning process. And at first events, when you watch smoke come out of that thing, when you watch that robot that just a minute ago was, was shooting along and now it's sitting there like a lump, or the arm just fell off it, you look at those kids, and yeah, they're disappointed, but almost without exception, they support each other. They take their robots back, and, and the people they were competing with are helping them repair it, and they're getting ready for the next round. And I think you leave those events, and you realize that the kids, in many cases, more than the parents, more than the adults, more than the teachers, the kids will tell you, yeah, my robot lost, but we all won. You know, we've been talking a lot about how it's important to learn how to fail constructively and then keep moving forward to ultimately reach that goal or create that invention, whatever it happens to be. How has that applied in your life? Have there been a time or many times, I imagine, where you're working on something important, you're failing over and over and over again, doesn't seem possible, but then at the end of it, there was a exceptional outcome that resulted from fighting through those failures? I guess I would tell you, the world typically only sees the successes of any of the people that have done a big thing. I can't speak for the rest of them, but I would tell you, in my life, 
it's it's not one out of two or one out of three or one out of four. It seems that it's one out of a hundred of the things I try to do ever reaches a big scale, and even a very very small percentage of that reaches the scale I would have hoped it would reach. And even those things that I've worked on over the years, they all have one thing in common. Every overnight success I've ever had has taken between 10 and 20 years. And some of them keep going and keep growing, but they still haven't reached the place that I'd call them a success. First is in its 31st year. And in year one, we had something like 23 teams. In year two, around 50, then around 100. We've had phenomenal growth on a percentage basis. Last year, we had something like 80,000 teams, 200,000 volunteer mentors. The scale is unbelievable. We gave out more than $60 million in scholarships. But after 30 some odd years, we're still nowhere near we need to be. We need to be available in every school to every kid. And we're nowhere near that yet. So first is another one of my overnight successes that maybe in another 10 years, I'll be able to say we're in every school, every kid that, that wants an opportunity to see what it's like to participate in this kind of activity, I can do it. But almost every project I've ever done has taken many years longer than I would have predicted when I started. And again, I think it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. If you are realistic to a brutally honest extent, you'd have to say, yeah, this thing is going to be really hard. It's going to take a long time. And there's such a high probability of failure. I won't do it. And on the other hand, if you're so naively idealistic, you'll try anything, you'll burn yourself out and get nowhere. So I think the people that succeed at innovation are some schizophrenic blend of of unbelievable you know optimists that are somehow backed up by themselves and a team around them that are telling them yeah you knew it would take years you knew it would take a lot of time and a lot of resources and a lot of energy just keep plugging away at it and somewhere between the optimism that keeps you going and the reality of how critical the need is and how realistically you should you should be expecting it to be a long haul. You get up every day <laughs> with the optimism and you go to bed every night realistically saying, yep, we knew it's going to be hard. We got to keep going. So what, what are you working on now? What's keeping you interested in, in innovation and scale now? So we, we started an organization. In a way, it's a little like FIRST. It's a not-for-profit. It's a coalition. It's much newer than FIRST. It's only a few years old. But I'm proud to tell you, in only a few years, it's now up to more than 170 members, of which probably 25 or so are some of the biggest and most prestigious medical schools and medical institutions in the country and research labs. And it's got over 100 major companies, including you know the big ones that you'd think of in big pharma and big med tech, and a bunch of startups of, of incredibly innovative optimistic innovators, but collectively, it's drawing from the best of the world of biology and medicine and engineering. And the name of the organization is ARMI, A-R-M-I. We called it ARMI because it got a jump start with a 
grant from the United States Department of Defense for $80 million. And I thought the least we could do is recognize them with the name of this coalition. And I didn't want to call it Army with a Y. It would be confusing. And since the mission of this coalition is nothing short of to make it possible to manufacture replacement human organs, everybody for decades now, particularly in the research community, has heard with great excitement of the advances in what's called regenerative medicine. And I knew if you use the word regenerative, it's almost always followed by medicine. And we are not doing basic research. We'll let all those brilliant people in all those medical institutions do research. We set out to do something very different than research. So the name of the organization itself reflects that. And the name of the organization, ARMY, stands for the Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute. And the goal of this coalition, mostly of engineering companies with expertise ranging from wafer fab from the semiconductor industry that can put a few billion transistor switches on a single chip, make it reliable and make it so cost effective, everybody that you know is wearing a device like that on their hip. But from them to the aerospace industry, you name it, we're bringing in the world's best technologists in, in the engineering of all other fields and saying, okay, we're now going to work with the biologists. We're going to take the miracles that are sitting in their Petri dishes and their roller bottles in all of these medical schools and labs. This guy's got a dish full of cells that he's figured out. These little things are going to start making insulin. Hey, we can make a replacement pancreas. And this Petri dish at this med school, they're showing electrical activity. This guy's making neurons. We can put them back into somebody and they were paralyzed before they'll walk out of here. They don't need my iBot. And this guy, he's making cells that'll do what a kidney does. Look, it's processing urea. They're nephrons. Hey, help put me out of the dialysis machinery business. And I'd love to have somebody, you know, we made the first wearable insulin pumps. I want to put myself out of that business. Let's give people back a new pancreas. I'd like to put myself out of the dialysis machine business. I'd like to put myself out of the iBot business. Imagine if you could take the organ du jour that somebody knows is failing and instead of giving them a chronic treatment for the lack of that functionality, insulin shots every day and careful what you eat between meals, dialysis treatments every day or every other day, and be careful what, what you eat and drink. Um, imagine if you could say to somebody, oh, your kidneys are failing or your pancreas is failing. We're going to take a few cells out of you. We're going to put them over here and turn them back, iPSCs, into induced pluripotent stem cells. Then by some other means, we'll... We'll maybe build a collagen scaffold of the size and shape that would be appropriate for a replacement organ. And then we'll figure out how to put these cells into them. And, you know, they're stem cells. They can grow up to be whatever they want. So we'll get them to grow up to be a kidney or a pancreas or a lung or a liver. And since we're growing them from your cells, if we give them back to you, first of all, you don't have to be on a long, long waiting list for cadaver organs that may not arrive in time to save your life. And B, even if there was an organ donor for you, you're probably going to have to take immunosuppressives for the rest of your life so you don't reject this other person's organ. But while you might not reject their organ, 
the immunosuppression leaves you vulnerable to all sorts of other things. And oh, by the way, it's an expensive way to get through life and you spend your life very nervous, like people today wearing masks everywhere they go. So we said, if we could build the baseline tool sets that would allow the creation of a whole new industry, just the way the understanding of the semiconductor when it was really first demonstrated at Bell Labs, what, 70 years ago, turned an entire industry, Silicon Valley, into a place where uh, we've transformed, you know, to a digital world. What if in the same way as that basic understanding of material science and semiconductors, what if we could harness all of the brilliant research that's been done in the world of, of medicine and biology and tie it to the world of high volume, high quality, scalable manufacturing. So instead of a Petri dish with demonstrations of a few cells of this type or that type, what if we could build hundreds of thousands of individual organs, each made for a particular recipient from perhaps their own stem cells and eliminate the need for chronic treatment? First of all, I've never met a patient that can't wait for the next dialysis treatment. I, I mean, as much as we're proud that we've made those machines, it's because the alternative is you can't live without your kidneys function being replaced. That doesn't mean it's a happy experience. They're waiting for a replacement. In the same way, we're very proud that we made the first insulin pumps, but I've never met a kid that can't wait to prick his or her finger again and adjust their insulin again and be careful about their glucose intake again. Wouldn't those kids perhaps prefer to just have a pancreas like everybody else that they don't have to worry or a, or a kidney. So it's not only better for the patients to cure their problem as opposed to chronically treat it, but if you look at the cost of healthcare in this country, almost 100% of it, well over 90% of all of our healthcare costs is for the chronic treatment, whether it's dialysis or chronic drugs for everything you can imagine. Those diseases that we can cure are very cost effective. You give somebody a vaccine and they'll never get polio or smallpox. Every baby gets a vaccine. We wipe those problems out. There are some things we don't know how to cure, but we can treat them, whether it's various kinds of cancer. And every year we get better at not just treating it, but curing it. Well, that's okay. So you prevent it with the vaccine or you cure it with surgery or, or pharmaceuticals. And then there's only two things left. One is we don't know how to prevent it. We don't know how to cure it. Well, then you, we can either treat it or you die. Dying is very efficient, but not the outcome anybody's looking for. So you're left with that last one. We can treat it. Well, that's where most of the money gets spent. The cures were easy. The ones we can't cure are tragedies, but efficient. But most of our medical dollars that are literally going to bankrupt this country as we keep allowing people to live longer lives with more and more treatments as more and more of their organs need support. But what if you could give them a brand new replacement organ as a cure? Besides living a better quality of life, we will bend the cost curve in the opposite direction and eliminate the probability that without doing so, we're going to bankrupt ourselves. So I formed this not-for-profit army it's got 170 members. It's growing very well. It's only been around a few years, and we're getting some very promising results in some of the stuff we're, we're doing. And we've gotten some big new sponsors to help it grow even faster. 
So that's one of the things I'm doing. Of course, I'm still doing First, which is right across the street. It, it's going and growing. And in my, the rest of my day job, I have about 800 engineers here. And we are building next generation home dialysis to make it way more comfortable for patients to do it on their own in in the privacy and the dignity of their own house. We are making our iBots. We just delivered a couple this week to vets. One who left his legs on a landmine nearly 50 years ago in Vietnam and one that left his legs in Kabul on an IED. So we're up and running on the next generation of iBots to give people access, independence, mobility. We just signed an agreement with the Veterans Administration to help make, make them more available. We're working on ways to make vaccines self-administrable so that by the time the next pandemic shows its ugly face, we'll have much better and more efficient and safer ways to deliver a response to that. We stay busy. Dean, with uh, 800 engineers, you're obviously on the forefront of whatever's coming next. I'm curious looking back, because looking back, you've got a chance to spend time with some of the most well-known, famous legends in Silicon Valley and everywhere else. I was actually just curious if you could tell our audience something you learned from Steve Jobs or maybe something that you know most people don't know about him, but given your relationship with him, maybe you could give us some inside baseball on what he was like. I think one of the most interesting things about Steve versus you know many of the other icons of his time and now more recently of the next generation is he was very self-aware. He wouldn't tell you he was a great technologist. He was a great visionary that understood the power of technology if it would be properly applied. And I sat one time having dinner with him and he said, I'm sure you know that old phrase, Dean, you know, the customer's always right. Nothing could be further from the truth. The customer wants something a little bit different or a little bit better than the thing he's got now. You have to tell a person what's possible and convince them of what they want. Again, it was not that different than Henry Ford, who 100 years before him said, if you asked 100 people what they really need, they'd tell you a faster horse. And Henry Ford said, you don't need a faster horse, you need a car. But you know, I've thought about that kind of thinking many times in my life, that incremental progress is what a lot of big organizations do, but disruptive progress is pretty rare. And think about it, even 10 or 20 years after Henry Ford was dominating the world of, of transportation with his invention, most people still called it a horseless carriage. It's not a horseless carriage, it's a car. And today we still call it email. It's not mail. The symbol for it is an envelope. Most of the kids growing up today probably wouldn't know what to do with an envelope. The symbol for a phone has a dial on it. They wouldn't know what to do with that contraption. But we have a world that clings to what people are familiar with and a world that, for better or worse, is, is viscerally very, very reluctant to change. Even people that are unhappy with their current situation or their current solution to a problem are typically very leery about going to anything new. And I think, again, it's in part biological. We are very risk averse. We don't walk into that dark place. 
Well, going to a new technology or a new invention is like taking a step into a dark place. You don't know what's there. And I think turning an invention, a great new piece of technology, into an innovation requires somebody that can really deliver such a powerful understanding of the opportunity that it makes people overcome their reluctance to be willing to change. And I think Steve Jobs was one of the greatest examples of somebody that could deliver that message, that could show the possibilities of why what he was offering would be such a big improvement to your life that you are willing to do what most people are reluctant to do, change. And, and I think he knew and understood that. Each of the projects, products that he made, I think he basically set out to demonstrate to people that you could disruptively make something so much better at dealing with your situation that you would throw away that, that CD player and, and use this iPod. You would throw away that old telephone and use this. You would throw away that computer and its operating system and use this. I think he fully understood innovation is about getting people to understand the opportunity that is associated with innovation. Dean, we always like to ask people who come on this podcast, what gives them optimism and for the future? And we know that you're an eternal optimist. So, you know, this is a, a whopper of a question to you. What gives you optimism? You know, we're still dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with a country that's polarized politically. We're dealing with a lot of regional inequality in terms of the economy and racial divides. What gives you a lot of optimism? So everything you just talked about represents a whole lot of very real and very serious problems. And I can add plenty more if you'd like to hear them. But as has been said many times, you know, every problem represents an opportunity. I think right now we are surrounded by, by nearly insurmountable opportunity. I would tell you I am an optimist and sorry, but I think you'll, you'll tell me why is it that the answer to every question you get is first, but I will tell you my optimism in many ways comes from first. I called it first, as I told you, which is an acronym for, for inspiration and recognition of science and technology. A, I didn't want it to be considered an education program. It's for the inspiration. It's for the recognition of science and technology. But I must admit when I started it, I was hoping it would be the technologists, the teachers, the mentors, the sponsors that would be inspiring all these kids to put their time and their effort and their energy into doing something really hard, developing the skill sets it's going to take for the, for the future of the world. What I didn't realize when I started it and called it for inspiration and recognition of science and technology is at the end of every interaction you have, with a first team or a first event, it's the kids that are inspiring us more than us inspiring them. You come away from those events and compare to all the things you just talked about, the gloom, the doom, the infighting, the, the, the fact that Washington seems to be more dysfunctional all the time. Adults never seem to run out of ways to produce the next level of self-inflicted wounds through God knows what logic process. But you go to a first event and you look at these kids. They're optimistic. 
They have energy. They have imagination. They'll look at you and they'll tell you, we can do this. I think that the reason so many people stay involved with FIRST is selfishness. They get more out of it than they put into it, no matter how much we ask them to put in their time, their money, their resources. Where can you go to a place where you can see a montage of humanity, boys, girls, different races, you just, just, you go to one of our events and it's a cross between, you know, the Super Bowl and a celebration that's unimaginable as being a competition. And you walk through the pits, these kids are working so hard, it's unbelievable. And so are their parents and so are their teachers. But somehow, while they're all competing, we call it a cooperation. And we tell them, you know, yeah, most of the robots are going to lose, but all the kids are going to win. And it's not just the kids, it's the parents, it's the teachers, it's the mentors. And it really is. You go to the event and you're not sure if you're at the Super Bowl or a rock concert, but what you're involved with is seeing that given the right incentives, the right environment, the right connection between kids and parents and, and generations of people, some that have experience and want to convey it, and kids that have a thirst for learning it. And you come away realizing that fundamentally, people want to help each other. People want to feel good about each other. People want to teach and learn and train. And, and we have artificially made that harder and harder to do in the world of politics and in many other worlds. I am an optimist because I think we're going to create a generation of kids that are ready, willing, and able to solve all the problems you talked about. They'll, they'll create energy sources that don't destroy the environment and, and more climate change. They'll help create through army ways to eliminate chronic misery in healthcare. They'll create ever better ways to deal with issues than we could even imagine. They'll share with each other because they'll realize that we're all in this together. They will get past the never-ending, frankly, self-inflicted and petty wounds that, that have affected the way political organizations have functioned for a thousand years. I believe we really will reach a place where that is happening more than any current political leaders uh, can appreciate. I hope it's in my lifetime, but I am optimistic that sometimes it takes really bad things for people to rise to the occasion to do what's right. And all the real issues that the world is now facing may be what it takes to have kids in every country realize that global warming is a common problem for all of them. It's not me against you. Having access to water and clean air and, and security on a global basis, I think we're, we're coming to a time when all kids everywhere are going to recognize they have common issues and it's not each other the way it used to be. The common issues of the next generation of, of humanity will be the global issues that they have to solve together or they will be consumed by together. So I'm optimistic that the, the environment is changing and humans will respond appropriately. Dean, we really appreciate your time today, the incredible insight, and absolutely the incredible optimism. This has been a tough year for everybody, and I know that the listeners of this podcast are going to be uplifted, excited, and inspired by your words, as Naveen and I have been. So thank you so much. Thank you, and, and tell your listeners, 
go to the FIRST website, get involved in their community with FIRST, and if they need a booster shot of optimism, all they got to do is get involved with FIRST. You got it. Thanks a million. Appreciate it, Dean. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. Music.